Hey, let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word, um, that it comes alive because of the work of your spirit, that uh, as, we, as we receive it, I pray that you would make our hearts soft and fertile soil. I pray you would speak to us even out of this text that is so old and ancient. I thank you that you are alive and well. You are the living God. Amen. Fifteen years ago, I was serving as an associate pastor in a small church in San Rafael, California. It was a non-denominational church with a loving congregation and a gracious and patient lead pastor. It was a wonderful community for Corey and I to be a part of as uh, we were only five years into our marriage. It was pre-kids. It was just a, a really cool place for us to be. And uh, our worship gatherings were lively and Christ-centered and biblically based. And yet, I found myself wanting. Had nothing to do with the church, but there was something about me that was lacking. I wanted more of Jesus but I didn't really know how to do that, not with the structures and the systems that uh, I was familiar with in church. Now, part of our weekly rhythm as staff members at this church was to get together on Tuesday mornings and pray with other pastors from other churches. And basically, whoever would show up and love Jesus could pray with us. We had pastors from Baptist churches and Assemblies of God and Episcopal churches and Presbyterians, One Covenant Church. That was the first time I ever met a covenant pastor. And there was one man there named Father Tom. Father Tom was from the Episcopal Church way out in Inverness, California, at a retreat center called St. Columba's. And there's something about this man, how he carried himself, how he was confident but humble. And there's something about how he prayed, sort of formally and yet full of life and heart. And I just wanted to know more about how he connected with Jesus? What was this depth of soul that I was witnessing from him? So one day I approached Father Tom about mentoring me, and he invited me out to St. Columba's retreat house for a couple of hours. The drive from San Rafael to Inverness takes you from the warmth of Marin County through groves of oak trees up the east side of the coastal mountains, down the west side where tall grasses begin to replace the oak trees. And by the time you get to Inverness, it's misty and cloudy and drizzly, much like its namesake from Scotland. You get the sense of great quiet and great peace and almost insulation. The retreat house itself had a small dining area, a modest sanctuary, and a meeting room with old wooden chairs and shelves and shelves of glorious old books. The structure was all made of old timber, and because of the musty weather, it smelled of must and old book bindings, and to me, that's what heaven might smell like. Over the next couple of years, I received spiritual direction from Father Tom at St. Columba's, and that place became for me a sacred space, a place where I met with God in a way that I wasn't meeting with God in other places and other times. The place itself wasn't magic. It wasn't situated on some physical anomaly or a cosmic trans, you know, trans, transept where uh, the laws of nature just were defied the laws of physics, right? It, was, it just it, it wasn't about the place. It was sacred to me because that is where I met God at that season in my life in such a way that it changed who I am. I can still smell it and see it in my mind's eye, and I can feel, you know, it's a little 
chili there, I would always bring an extra layer. It's one of those places that for me foreshadows what it might be like to be intimate with God all the time. Have you ever experienced a time or a place or a season that you would designate as sacred? A time or a place or a season in your life where you felt especially close to God. A place where you felt, if even for a moment, like heaven and earth were closer in that space and time than they were for you at other spaces and times. If you have, you would likely agree with me that when you were in that time and space, there's a resonance that feels a little bit like home like being in the presence of all self-sufficiency and right-relatedness, a sense that maybe you've been there before. And I think that there's a reason for this, because in the very beginning of time itself, humans were at home. It's what we were made for. You may have noticed that Tommy read out of Genesis chapter 2, In that chapter, we learn that in the beginning, God created all things, the heavens and the earth, the plants and the animals, the seas and the rivers, and in all this creation, there's a special place described as a garden, and in the garden, there's a special place to the east called Eden. Now, all creation, we know from Genesis 1, is sacred. God created all the stuff and put people in it and said everything, every square inch of this creation is very good. But Eden was a special place set set apart for relationship between humans and God. It was a place where humans could relate to God without fear, without shame, without boundaries or having to make special sacrifices. And it was a home because it was the place where heaven and earth came together. Sacred space. Now, let me remind you of some details. And cohort kids, I know you're taking some notes. So think about these details because they're going to come up a little bit later on in the service. In this paradise of Eden, humans and God walked together in unbroken relationship. By the way, every time that the Bible refers to temple worship or tabernacle worship, it says that God walked with people in the tabernacle, that God walked with people in the temple. Jesus walked with people too, didn't he? Just put that away somewhere. Eden was the special place in the greater creation In this paradise, by the way, people weren't in lawn chairs at a poolside drinking Mai Tais in paradise. In paradise, people had work, good work, meaningful work. They had vocation, and the vocation was to to caretake and and to improve upon even the raw creation that God had made, to, to exercise benevolent dominion over the plants and the animals and the landscape, to be gardeners and to work with the dirt and to protect this place. One way of seeing it is to be kings and queens over all creation. I find it interesting in The Magician's Nephew that that's one of the metaphors that C.S. Lewis uses. There are four rivers coming out of the garden center, which I think Lost picks up. You know, the show Lost a little bit on that. At the core of the island is the river coming out. It leads to the heart of the island. There's gold and there's onyx. Those details will come into play in a little bit. And in the middle of this garden is the tree of life. We see in this short description of Genesis 2, this imagery of a temple. Creation itself 
is God's temple, and Eden is the holy of holies, the place where heaven and earth kiss or meet or come close, a thin place, our true home. And then, you know the story, tragedy strikes. Adam fails to do part of his vocation, which is to keep, and in Hebrew, the only other place that we see that word is for the Levites who are supposed to protect the temple. I don't know if you remember this detail in Leviticus, because we never read Leviticus that often, but priests had kind of two responsibilities. One was to do the liturgy and to have their scriptures. You know what else they had on their belts? It was a sword to protect. And Adam does not protect the garden, and a serpent comes in, Satan and he gets Eve alone, and at that point, he talks her into doubting God's goodness, and both Adam and Eve end up eating the forbidden fruit and breaking forever their relationship between not only Adam and Eve and God, but human beings and God. Trust was broken, and while forgiveness happened and was possible, innocence was impossible. Notice that Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and pay attention to these details. After they're cast out, the entrance to the garden is guarded by angelic beings called cherubim. They're not chubby babies at the Christian bookstore. They are fierce beings dedicated to exalting the glory of God and protecting his holiness. You wouldn't want to mess with the cherubim. They're not chubby babies with wings. Okay. And notice that even though they're cast out of the garden, God shows them grace, not only by meeting their physical needs, but by making a way for them and their descendants to draw close to him. See, he gave them instructions of how to create earthen altars that would allow them to atone for their sin, only temporarily, but then they could come close to God and pray to him and and, and be present with him. And notice that they were cast out which direction? East. It's a common theme in Genesis. It's interesting to note that in the the Genesis stories that follow, when people sin big time, they're sent east. When Cain kills Abel, he and his clans are sent to the east. When Babylon, or when the, the Tower of Babel is built and God scatters the people, sends them to the east. Okay? And when God, by the way, initiates his rescue mission through a man named Abram, he brings him from the east toward Palestine in the west. That's interesting. Okay, so that's the backdrop for the exodus from Egypt. That's, that's the book we're in, is Exodus. And up until Exodus from Egypt, everything after the exile from Eden has been spontaneous revelations from God. So for example, uh, before uh, the exodus from Egypt, you've got the patriarchal period, and Jacob is kind of on the run, really on the run from his brother, and he has a dream while his head's on a rock, and it's Jacob's ladder, and it's this theophany where God is, is present to Jacob. Okay? So we just get these kind of one-off moments, or we get Moses and the burning bush, right? God shows up in this special way, but if Moses were to go back to that bush the next day, it's not like God is hanging out at that bush. It just, it just happened. It was for special revelation. Okay. But after the Exodus, God makes a way for his people to be with him on a more consistent basis, and, and he gives them the tabernacle, this tent of meeting. If you've never read through the texts of Exodus 24 through 40, um, or if you ever have, 
you would know that at best it's kind of tedious reading. At worst, you might just think, is this really relevant for my life in Bellingham in the 21st century? Does this have any practical application? Even the practical application study Bibles don't have a lot to say about the tabernacle. Okay. I wouldn't be preaching on it if I didn't think it mattered. So trust me, would you just let me show you. Okay, so we're going to go on a little journey. Okay. First, I'm going to just make a claim. So here's my claim. The tabernacle that God instructed Moses and the Israelites to make is an interpretive image of heaven on earth. The tabernacle that God instructed Moses and the Israelites to make is an interpretive image of heaven on earth. God's people had just been delivered from exile in Egypt, but an even greater exile than their political exile is that they were exiled from Eden, from God's consistent presence. And the tabernacle was going to bring God's presence on earth in a consistent form in a physical place. Now, there's way more to say about this, supporting evidence that I could do in one sermon. So I'm just gonna focus on two main areas to support my claim, okay? First, I want you to notice the position and the orientation of the tabernacle. God commanded uh, Moses to have the tabernacle in the middle of the camp with the tribes camping around it. Joe's gonna put that first picture We'll see the tabernacle in the middle of the community. It's just a sketch rendering. Um, Significance. You got all the tribes around this holy spot, this tabernacle. And here's why that matters. It doesn't matter to us that much, but it matters to ancient Near Eastern people who are reading this text for the first time or experiencing this for the first time. And here's why. In the ancient Near East, kings were viewed as either divine or as high priests representing the divine. And these kings would make gardens in the center of their settlements where people could come and and seek the king's audience for justice and to offer prayers and sacrifices to the gods. It sounds to me a lot like the Garden of Eden. Think about what I said before. If creation is God's temple, God is the king of the creation, he puts his Eden, this garden in the middle where he connects with people, okay? Is it any wonder then that as as people were expelled out of the garden, lost that daily relationship with God, began to have memories of what that was like, Um, some people become God's people, some people become pagan tribes of all different shapes and sizes, but most of these ancient Near Eastern pagan tribes still maintained that the king would have a garden where people would come into the middle and meet with him. When God, by his grace, created a way for people to draw close to him again, he did it by mirroring a sort of mini-creation right in the middle of the camp. God was coming to be at the center of his people. And this makes even more sense when we consider the position of the tabernacle. It says clearly in the scriptures that the the entrance to the tabernacle was facing which direction? East. Every time God sent someone into exile because of their sin, it was toward the east. So by having the tabernacle entrance face the east, it was as if God was saying, here I am, Come back to me from the east. Come back from exile into my presence. Let's go to the next image there, Joe. The tabernacle God instructed Moses and the Israelites to make is a representative, an image of heaven and earth. It's a sacred space. We see this in its position in the middle of the camp. 
We see in its orientation toward the east, welcoming people back. And second, we see it in its structure and its contents. Okay, so let's look at this layout. Here's the outer borders. Oh, you know, oh my laser doesn't work on that because it's not a screen. Okay, you can see it yourself. I just really wanted to use my laser. <laughs> Dang. Okay, you can see it well enough. We'll begin with the outer courtyard. That's the, the, the square to the right side. This is the place where sacrifices were made. So you come in from that arrow, that arrow to the right, that's facing east. You come in from that side, and the first place that you get is this outer courtyard. And in that outer courtyard, there's an altar that's made of bronze, which is a nice metal in the ancient world, but it is not a precious as gold metal. Okay, so you're out in the outer courts. And you come out of the east full of sin because you've been out of God's presence, you've been exiled to the east, and you come in full of sin, but a sacrifice is made that allows you to draw closer to God. This outer court represents the world, the greater creation. This is where the messiness of life actually happens. Surrounding this space is a blue to violet, purpley thing. That's, hey, we've never seen it. That's what it's described in the scriptures, okay? I know you're thinking, that dude's colorblind. He doesn't know. Well, I didn't see it. I read it in Exodus. You can read it too. So just trust me, okay? <laughs> Let's go to the next slide, Joe. And you can see right there. So that curtain where that, that fancily dressed man is, um, that curtain behind him separates the outer court from the holy place. And it is made to represent uh, the, the river coming out of Eden. It is, it is blue. It is purple. It's glorious. It's it, It's holy. And if you were to pass through that curtain, you would go to the holy place, and you've entered the greater garden of God. And in this place, there's the altar of incense, which I don't think we have a picture of, but that's okay. And rather than being made out of bronze, like the altar in the outer court, the altar of incense is made out of gold, representing the pure gold described in the garden. Remember, kids, when I said pay attention to those, those things, right? So we had pure gold in Genesis 2, and that's made of pure gold. By the way, uh, Genesis also uh, talked about onyx, right? Well, the priests, which we'll talk about in weeks to come, were onyx stones on their ephod as they would come into the presence of God. And so, uh, again, a representative of the same minerals and stones that were in the Garden of Eden. So the altar of incense represents the prayers of the people. Uh, reference uh, to the prayers of the people being incense is, is made in Revelation, where the prayers of the saints reach God as smoke or incense. Our prayers are a pleasing aroma to God. And the smoke also represents that, that pillar of smoke and fire that uh, was like God's presence with the Israelites before the tabernacle as they're wandering through the desert. Okay, and the next picture is the bread of presence. Any of you kids want to count how many loaves there are? Yell it out. Twelve loaves, very good. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve loaves of bread. This bread represents, like Eden, abundance. You know, the, the garden in Genesis 2 provided an abundance of food for the, the people and the animals. Uh, bread was the staple of the Israelite, of all the ancient Near Eastern diet, uh, much like um, rice is in the, in the far eastern side of the world or, or uh, in Latin America, uh, much like French fries are here, right? So it's just the, the staple food that, that would just be uh, uh, showing abu the abundance of God. 
And it's on display in the holy place as a, as a metaphor of this abundance. Uh, but there's more. In the instructions to Moses, God specifically says there, are, there have to be 12 loaves at all time, one for each tribe of Israel. And here's the most significant imagery. The bread is called the bread of presence. This is a table put out as though God were hosting us. It's symbolic of table fellowship with God. God isn't just a ruler over us. He isn't just a king. He isn't merely a creator. He's all of those things, but he's also a father who loves his people, who wants relationship with them. You know, this is unlike any other ancient Near Eastern God. In all of those cosmologies and mythologies, people are created either by accident or specifically to be slaves, to serve the gods because they didn't want to work at all. Okay. This is a different kind of God that we're dealing with. It's a God who hosts. And finally, but not least by a long shot, is the golden lampstand. Let's take a look at that. Like the altar of incense and the table for the bread of presence, the golden lampstand is made out of gold. And we'll go into more detail about how it's made and all of its ornaments when we get into our, our, the week that we talk about the arts and craftsmanship of the tabernacle. That's a different, a different week. But again, it's gold like Eden. Seven lamps. By the way, uh, gold melts at about half the temperature that olive oil burns at. And so those holders would actually hold clay lamps, and the clay lamps was what would hold the oil and burn the fire so that the gold wouldn't melt. So anyway, there's seven spots for seven lamps that would sit on top of those places. And that is for, that's representing a few things. One of the things it represents are the seven celestial bodies. In the ancient world, people could see five planets with the naked eye and the sun and the moon. It was believed that those are the seven celestial bodies that, were, that, that we can see that God created. So in a way, this is, this is uh, again, representative of creation, of heaven meeting earth, and it is uh, the bread of God's presence for the sustenance of people, but it's also everything you can see in the sky. It is the entire universe coming into place in this one holy spot. The most powerful imagery of the golden lampstand is that it's in the shape of the tree, full of buds and blossoms. It is a shadow of the tree of life. Trees in the center of religious sacred spaces are common across cultures, uh, which makes sense. If the true story of creation, there's this tree of life as described in scripture. Abraham often worshiped and made significant sacrifices next to trees or made decisions at the Oak of Mamre, right? So we, he's by these trees. If you've read Game of Thrones, or always talking about the heart tree or the, you know, these kind of trees, so that's built into that mythology. But if we go further back, I, I know some of you kids uh, like the, uh, the Rorden books, like Percy, uh, you know, like Lightning Thief and all that stuff, but there's also a series, right, on Norse mythology. And so you might be familiar with the, um, the world tree. And this, this picture is actually um, from the Prose Edda, uh, which is, you know, Icelandic mythology. And the tree forms the, the spine of the whole cosmos from the highest heaven of Asgard to the lowest hell and everything in between. It's interesting, isn't it? Now, in the 20th century, a Roman Catholic scholar, friend of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, an Icelandic scholar who translated all of these works, also reincorporated, baptized this idea, seeing that it was actually a Christian idea from the tree of life in the garden and the tree 
in the tabernacle. And he created this next tree, which is the white tree of Gondor. And you notice the seven celestial bodies in this. And the tree of Gondor in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right, is, uh, uh, it comes back to bloom when the, right, the rightful king, Aragorn, comes into power. And the tree has the power to heal out of its leaves. And I, I like that how, how Tolkien has paid homage, of course, to the, the mist that he loved from the Norse, but also baptized them or, or rather um, brought them back to their rightful place in, in his own Christian mindset. So uh, thank you for letting me geek out a little bit with you uh, <laughs> as I got to share that. So, so we have the outer court and the bronze altar facing east as if saying, come ye sinners from exile, come and be atoned for and come into the presence of God. And then we have the veil of blue and violet to pass through from the outer court into the holy place. The place is like the garden that we were cast out of. It is the place of life and provision and light and fellowship. But beyond the holy place, there is yet another curtain, deep blue and purple like the first, but this next veil has golden cherubim embroidered on it. Just like the golden cherubim that were keeping people out of that center of Eden. Now these are on the curtains here in the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies, the most central spot of the tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. That's, nobody knows what it looks like. Uh, Indiana Jones really did not find it, so we don't know what it looks like for real. Uh, we have the dimensions and we have descriptions that are quite detailed in Scripture, but this is a rendering that comes as close as I can figure. And... Um, We'll talk about it here. First of all, inside, what you don't see is that there are three main things inside the Ark of the Covenant. There is the, the tone, stone tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, which is our relational covenant with God. There's Aaron's staff after it budded, and that is to represent God's guidance and protection over his people. And then there's the jar of manna. Uh, do you remember when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they were starving and, and God provided manna that showed up like dew every day and they could collect this bread-like stuff. Uh, and, it, and so God commanded them uh, to put some in a jar to remember that he cared for them and provided for them in the wilderness. But the most significant feature is the mercy seat, which is the area right in the middle under the wings of these cherubim. And that's where God's presence uh, was most specifically dwelling. Uh, probably, like, like, listen, God, like God is everywhere. He doesn't need to just come to the spot. But, but the reason for that is because it was believed that, that kings and rulers had these footstools. And, and the mercy seat was the place where, metaphorically, God would be above, that that was his kind of place. We're going to go into lots more detail about the mercy seat again in weeks to come when we talk about the subject of sacrifice in worship. But pay attention to these cherubim, the mighty angelic beings stationed at the Garden of Eden to keep sinful humans out of the holy presence of God are not positioned facing away from the ark. In other words, what I'm saying is that the way it's described, they are not keeping anyone away. They are pointing inward as if access to God is through the law, through his covenant, and most powerfully, what's in between there? The mercy seat. The access to God is through the mercy of God. And the tabernacle, in all of its symbolism, is an interpretive image of heaven on earth. 
God's people had been exiled from his presence, and so what did he do? He comes to them, and he provided not only presence, but access. Like, like the father of the prodigal, this tabernacle pointed east with open arms, welcoming all of the prodigals, all of us back into his presence. The tabernacle was made a tent. It was intentionally portable. Wherever they wandered in the desert, these wandering people could bring the sacred space with them and could know that God was with them and could worship there. But once they were established in the promised land after the book of Exodus, they didn't need the tabernacle anymore. And so God commanded Solomon to build a temple. And then in the fullness of time, one greater than the temple came to earth, Jesus, God in the flesh. In fact, the gospel writer John tells us that in Jesus, the word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us. And you can see where this is going, right? But before we jump to Jesus, which I've already done a little bit, I need to make something very crystal clear. It's something I think most of us struggle with as 21st century Christians or people who hang around Christians, okay? Listen, the tabernacle, the Old Testament, let me just say this, the Hebrew scriptures are not merely a setup for the New Testament. The Old Testament has value in and of itself. It was the scripture of Jesus and Paul and Peter. It's not just a T that you then hit the real good stuff off of, okay? And, and, and in the same way, the tabernacle is not merely, meaning not only a sign of something greater to come. It absolutely does point to Jesus. Just read the book of Hebrews and it will tell you it's a shadow of what's in heaven, right? But, but in the moment for those people that we're reading about, the tabernacle was nothing short of God's real presence to real hurting people. Another way to think about it is the tabernacle wasn't just a place for worship, it was a reason to worship. That that God of theirs, that God of ours, is the kind of God who comes to his people even when they rebel time and time again. And that is, that's a trait worthy of worship. Human beings are flesh and blood, aren't we? Sometimes we try and transcend our boundaries with our technology, when it 